Good morning. Well, by now you know that God has interrupted my life. He has a tendency to do that from time to time, amen? You know, we, we've been studying Galatians, and uh, I've been kind of living in Galatians. And as Tim mentioned, most specifically in Galatians 2.20. And if you're familiar with the passage, and I'll be reading through the, the New King James. I have a hard time with some of the newer translations, so that's about as new as I can get. I'm sort of old school. Computers and those kind of things aren't always my best friends. I remember having a pad and pencil, and my pencil never broke down, and it never got a virus, and I didn't need tech support to use it. So I kind of like the tried and true, but I'm, I'm willing to go as far as the new King James. And it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, as as I read this, it, it always seemed to me that there's a phrase in there that doesn't quite belong. The life that I now live In the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And the word used there is sarx. It's translated all over the scripture as the flesh, carnal, you know, that thing that we're not supposed to be, and yet I find it right in the middle of this passage. And soon, in Galatians, we're going to be talking about the fact that the flesh wars against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, so that you can't do the things that you want to do very often. So I found it kind of strange that it's right in the middle of this passage, and as God interrupted my life, I began to see it in a little bit different light. Um. My vocation for most of my adult life has been in sales. And for the last eight years, I've been working for Sleepy's, the mattress folks. And the position I've held for the last three years is one of a corporate trainer. When, when we hire new people, uh, they get put in my class for about, about four weeks, and I, you know, I, I teach them how to do the business. It's a combination of of teaching in a classroom, and then they go out into the field for a couple of weeks, and they learn in there. And it's something that I enjoy greatly doing. As a matter of fact, most jobs that I've worked in sales, sooner or later, they've put me in the training department because that's just sort of the way I'm wired up. I sort of see things in in teachable moments, and I see complex things in, in their component parts. And It really is my dream job. That's what really gets me up in the morning to be able to help someone become better at their profession, to do a better job, to provide for their family a little bit better. And and it was a great joy for the three years that I've been doing this. And the company paid me a a very generous salary and 
and a year-end bonus, which just seemed like it was sort of just frosting on the cake. The last class that I had, I had about 20 students in it, and most were males. We only had about three women in the class and a lot of younger guys. And there was one gentleman um, who was openly gay. And I mention that only because this is not about a choice of lifestyle, but you'll understand as I go along that it's an integral part of the story. And one of the things that we do in uh, our training is we break people up into groups of threes to practice the processes by which we talk to people and help them determine what the right mattress is and, and eventually make the sale. And so we do a lot of role playing. And we were breaking up into role play groups of three people and we typically would have one person who plays the salesperson and one person who plays the customer and one person who kind of stands back and provides feedback about what they heard. And it doesn't always work out with even threes. We had about 20 people in the class, so we had two groups of four. And uh, the gentleman that I'm speaking about had seemed to have problems with just about everything. Uh, he had already made a complaint to our HR representative that uh, while he was in the hotel that we house a lot of these folks in, if they drive from a long way away for that week of training, we put them up in a nearby hotel. And he was concerned that other students who were in the hotel were making uh, comments about his gay lifestyle. And he complained about that and really had complained about just about everything in class, in the field training, and just was not a happy camper. And with that as a background, I happened to notice that in the groups of four, I had four gentlemen. And uh, many of them were younger guys, and I could kind of see into the future a little bit, uh, because one of the things that we instruct them is, when you have four in your group, you have one salesperson, you have two customers, and you have one person who provides feedback. And, you know, my concern as a company representative is the last thing that I really needed was a couple of guys hamming it up as a gay couple, you know, buying a bed together. And I wanted to eliminate that possibility. So I said in passing as they got up, went to move into our mock showroom, in your group of four, uh, if you're not comfortable with two customers in your group, then let's just go ahead and change it up and we'll have two people providing feedback, one salesperson, one customer. And I heard later from our HR representative, uh, I didn't hear the exact comment, but um, apparently he made a comment to some other folks and then followed up with a formal complaint that he didn't understand why that would make someone feel uncomfortable. Then we talked it through, and, and uh, that was the end of that. At the end of the class... Uh, I got a phone call from the head of the Human Resources Department, uh, and the conversation began like this. This is probably not going to be a pleasant conversation, but we'll try and get through it the best way we can. Not exactly how you want to start a conversation with the head of HR. And he proceeded to tell me that... Uh, 
that based upon that comment that he felt that I had put the company at risk and they had decided to remove me from my position uh, as a corporate trainer. Just about like that, yeah. There was a lump that just kind of hit the pit of my stomach. It was sort of like just being stabbed in the gut. And then he went on to say, um, but, you know, we recognize your value to the company and we would like to offer you a position back in sales. Now, for me, I had gotten very, very comfortable in that position. Uh, I was a salesperson. I was used to living on commission and trusting God for my income. And this was a salary and weekends off and a predictable amount of money, and it, it had become very comfortable for our family. And sometimes the difference between, and it was a comfortable little groove, but sometimes the only difference between a groove and a grave is about six feet. And it was obvious that God was about to shake up my world. The funny thing was, I had mentioned to my wife probably three, four weeks earlier I said, you know, I just have this sense that change is coming. It's not exactly the change I was anticipating, but I just sort of felt sometimes God kind of gives you a little peek behind the curtain, and I felt that change was coming. And so when I came home, I shared with her, and she wanted to hurt people. She wanted to hurt buildings, Many of the, the fellow trainers that I had, there's about, uh, about five other guys throughout the company that do the same thing I did. I shared with them. They were outraged and uh, said, you know, you have to fight this. Uh, you have to sue the company. And there was a part in my flesh that said, you know what, that's really a good idea. I've been wronged, and maybe this is a way to make it right. I've been crucified with Christ, and yet it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh. I really started thinking about the fact that my faith tells me that God is sovereign. This didn't surprise him. He didn't run to Jesus in the Spirit and say, we've got to figure out what to do in Bailey's life. That he had a purpose and he had a plan. I didn't know what it is, but apparently this was part of the plan. And I recognize that, you know, as we've been talking about the fact that we do have liberty in Christ, that there was a certain amount of liberty that I had to certainly pursue maybe a legal action. I have no idea where that would lead, but, but in this particular case, I really didn't feel that that's where God wanted me. He wanted me just to live by the faith in the Son of God and recognize that he either orchestrated this in my life or he permitted this in my life for a reason. 
And my job was to figure out what that reason was. So I started thinking about what does it mean to live this experience in the flesh? The flesh is used here because, you know, we talk an awful lot about living in the spirit. And that's sort of internal, isn't it? You know, when you think about things spiritual, it's inside. And people don't kind of see the spiritual thing that happens in our life very often. But this is about living in the flesh. And the flesh is what's on the outside. And I began thinking about, okay, what is this supposed to look like on the outside, I knew what it looked like on the inside. Okay, I'm supposed to trust God. And I, I, could, I could name all of the Christian platitudes that go right along with this, you know, that, that all things work together for good to those who trust God, you know, and, 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 you know, God's in control and God's still on the throne and all those kind of things, you know, all those spiritual ideas that accompany this. But what did it really look like in the flesh on the outside? So I know a lot of people in the company. I've trained a lot of them. And and as the word kind of filtered out, although the official company line was that I had stepped down of my own volition, and and that's fine. There's a few key people that that I really felt should know the situation. And the people that, that I shared it with, you know, had the same sort of sense of outrage in that. But I realized that it gave me an opportunity in the flesh to flesh this out. And I started sharing with people what I've told you, that my faith tells me that, that this did not happen in a vacuum, that, that God is sovereign, he's in control, that he has a plan and a purpose in this. I'm not sure what it is, but I know I can trust him. And I got a lot of varied responses. Many people said, I don't understand how you can feel that way. But I realized it was important for people to see my faith, to see me behave differently. And, and that doesn't mean that the, that the doubts don't come that I'm wondering how I'm supporting my family now again on, on commission where you have a paycheck every week that is undetermined. I should have sort of had a, an inkling of this when in the class before this one, one of the young men in the class did his field training with a, a guy that I used to work with right here in Newtown. And uh, he came back to the class and he says, hey, I met your old partner, Neil, at Newtown. And he said, when I saw you again, to be sure and tell you the story of the divine sale. I thought, wow, here's an opening I can drive a truck through. So I thought, great, Lord. So I told him the story of my divine sale. Uh, I had been working and one of the unique things about a, 
a commission pay period in our company is that the sales that you make that are delivered during the two-week pay period are paid two weeks later. So two weeks ahead of time, you know if you're going to be having a party on payday or you know if there's a train coming. You can see the train wreck already happening. And it had been one of those two-week periods when it looked like the light at the end of the tunnel was a train. And I found myself on my knees in the back room going, well, God, you're really behind. In case you didn't know, uh, there's not a whole lot of money in this paycheck coming up. So you don't have much time to get to work. I got a phone call later that day from a woman who had purchased a couple of beds from me a couple of years ago. And I remembered her because she was one of those really easy customers, the kind who walk in, try two or three of the most expensive beds and say, I'll take this one in king size. And then she came in about two weeks later and said, I'd like to have one of the same ones in queen size for my mother's guest room. So you remember those kind of people. And she was calling because a friend of hers had tried uh, a, and purchased a Tempur-Pedic bed and was raving about her sleep experience in that. And she wanted to know, did we carry those? And I said, we did. And she goes, can you tell me a little bit about them? And I did, and I said, there's different types. And she goes, well, which ones are the best? And so I shared with her the three models that were the best, which also happened to be the most expensive. And she goes, well, what's the best one of those? And I said, well, it's the one called the Grand Bed. And it does have a grand price. And she said, would you check to see if you have them in stock? I need a king and a queen. I said, okay, I'll check. And I checked, and we did. And this is about an $18,000 sale. At the time, the company said, uh, you cannot take an order over the phone credit card fraud and things like that, but you can take a deposit, and the deposit was $100. That was the maximum amount that we could take over the phone. She goes, my husband will be in later to pay the balance. So I don't know if any of you have any sales experience, but the only thing worse than no sale is having an $18,000 order with a $100 deposit and a lick and a promise that someone is coming in later to pay the other $17,000-some dollars. It just doesn't really give you warm fuzzies. And it was going past 8 o'clock, and we closed at 9, and I hadn't seen anybody. And this was the longest day of my life. So a little after 8, her husband comes in. He was obviously in a medical profession. He still had his scrubs on, and he says, I understand that my wife ordered some beds. I said, yep. They're right over here. Let me show you. He says, so 
those are the most expensive beds you have? And I went, yes, sir. Said, that sounds like my wife, and threw a credit card on the desk. I got caught up real fast. But I got caught up without doing anything. I couldn't say, well, it was my great sales ability that did this. It was over the flipping phone. God just took me completely out of the equation and said, let me show you how I can take care of you. Now, if I was smart, when I told that story to uh, Bob, told him about my divine sale, I should have realized there was more in it than just a little message to him. And he goes, wow, that really was divine. I now realize God was trying to remind me that as he was about to change me, that the way he used to take care of me was the way he would continue to take care of me. The life that I now lead in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, And that really is where I'm placing my faith, that God does have a plan. You know, that's what I read here, that God is sovereign, that he has a plan. That's what it said in God's word. And I'm I'm basing my faith and I'm basing my family's faith on the promises that he's made. And it's why we do this on Sundays. It's why we have small groups to learn more about God through his word. And, and the word of God is, is interesting. It's, it's challenging. It's all kinds of things. But I've discovered in my life it doesn't really become valuable. It doesn't really become alive and powerful until it becomes a part of my life. I believe that's why the word of God needed to become flesh and dwell among us. Paul, uh, writing to the Corinthians in chapter 2, is talking about how we're not like some of those people who need letters of commendation, you know, from these great authorities or from you. He says, you, you, are our letters of accommodation. You are our epistles known and read by all men. And that's when I really began to see this whole experience a little more clearly. He says, You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men, Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tablets of flesh. The life that I now lead in the flesh. I don't know what it says in your version, but in 
The word here is the same word, sarx. It's the adjective form. God is making me, through this, an epistle that other people can read. (laughs) I had that experience again this morning. We have some friends that live in the neighborhood, and they've been gone for a while, and uh, she came by the house as my wife and I were sitting on the porch, and uh, she goes, gosh, I haven't seen you guys in a while. What's changed? And my wife started telling her, and as she's telling her, I'm thinking, well, I guess it's time for Candace to read this chapter of my epistle. Every one of us, I believe very strongly, is a letter that God is writing. He is writing an epistle in each one of our lives so that other people can read it. I guess the important thing to think about is who's reading yours? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you care enough about us not just to save us, but to transform us and to write your story in our lives for other people to read. I pray, Father, that you would help me to continue to understand how to be faithful to this experience in my life. Be faithful to recognize the opportunities that you provide through this to share what you're doing in my life. I pray that you would help the people that are here today to be able to recognize the areas in their lives where you're, where you're writing to other people as well as themselves. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.